Radio KSIK. You've been listening to Music for Old Invalids. Our next selection is entitled Sick Room Serenade. Greetings, my friend. When you mention the movies you hold near and dear, do other people run away from you really fast? Sometimes it seems as if I belong to a different world. We invite you to our cinematic science lab in the Mountains of Madness. A rest stop for those who like their films with double extra cheese. The Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. What kind of place is this? It's a safe haven from summer blockbusters. A refuge from the reboots, remakes, and regurgitations of Hollywood. But be careful, once you've stepped into this dimension of demented directors, you may not want to step back out. Don't try to escape, you can. There is no way out of here, because all you of Earth are idiots. And now, your guide to this episode's journey through the junkyard of Hollywood, Professor Stanton Gearhart. Hello once again, and welcome to episode number three of the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. I am your partially mechanized Master of Ceremonies, Professor Stanton Gearhart, and I bid you a good afternoon or good evening or good morning or whatever the time of the day you're listening to this. And once again, this is the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat, where you can take shelter from the multi-million dollar mediocrities of modern Hollywood and explore the bizarre, the obscure, and the downright cheesy films of past and present. Those movies that will entertain you in ways their creators never intended. Now in this episode, we're going to pay our first visit to a world that I hope to visit many times over the course of this show's run, the world of Roger Corman. Now, if you call yourself a connoisseur of crap cinema, and yet you don't at the very least recognize the name of Roger Corman, then guess what? You're not a connoisseur of crap cinema. You're not even close. While most of his best work is many decades old by now, his influence continues to be felt throughout the film industry to this very day. If it weren't for Roger Corman, movie making as we know it probably wouldn't exist. He was truly one of the greats of low-budget filmmaking and a master of making things up as he went along and stretching a dollar until it screamed for mercy. We'll get more into his story later on in the show, but right now what we're going to talk about is one of his earlier classics, a film that makes me want to meet him and shake his hand every time I see it, the original Little Shop of Horrors. Take it easy, Dracula. What do you think I'm carrying here, my dirty laundry? Where a man-eating talking plant gives homicide something to think about. I didn't do it. Do what? Whatever. Ever see this man? Man, see picture. Why are you so nervous? Boy, you kiss good, Audrey. Oh, I guess I just have a good kisser. Now you will do as I say. Yes, Master. You will go out and find me some food. Yes, Master. 
What's the matter? Don't you like me? Too bony. Too bony? Nobody ever told me that before. Beef is better than veal. Ah, oh, you're such a dodo. What do you call this? Chopped liver? And the trailer that you just listened to is one of those rare trailers that actually does convey uh, a good element of the zaniness of the film that you're about to see, or that we're about to discuss here. Now, I could really sum up this movie with a single sentence. Jerry Lewis wannabe takes on the world's largest Venus flytrap, but it deserves a far better explanation than that, so here we go. In the Skid Row section of... I think the city's identified as Los Angeles. Uh, it may not be identified. In any case, that's where it was shot. There sits the small shop of the grumpy, neurotic florist named Gravis, Gravis Mushnik. This shop serves a number of eccentric customers, including a sadistic dentist who takes out his frustrations a little too freely on his patients, an elderly lady who is constantly in mourning of uh, losing at least one relative a day to some disease or accident and therefore is in constant need of funeral bouquets, and a perfectly normal gentleman who buys a dozen white carnations and then promptly eats them. They are all right? Well, I've had better. Well, this is a small shop. Oh, that's okay. You know, those big places, they're full of pretty flowers, expensive flowers. When you raise them for looks and smell, you're bound to lose some food value. I like to eat these little out-of-the-way places. Such a thing, eating flowers. Look, don't knock it until you try it, huh? As if this weren't enough, Mushnik also has to deal with his two goofball employees, the perky airhead, Audrey Folkward, and the clumsy oaf, Seymour Krellboind. And Seymour is the one who quickly emerges as the tragic hero of this story. Mushnik has just watched Seymour Mush... Mushnik? No, no, not Mushnik. Muck. <laughs> Having... He's just watched Seymour muck up one too many orders, as he basically does the reverse of the old axiom to measure twice and cut once. And he's on the verge of firing Seymour when Seymour tries to make a deal with him. He offers to bring in an unusual plant that he's been cultivating at home. And if the plant draws customers to the shop, then he can keep his job. If not, then Mushnik can kick him out onto the street. We first see the plant, uh, which Seymour has named Audrey Jr. after his co-worker and the painfully apparent crush, as a sickly little bud in a tiny pot. You named it after me! Oh, really? That's the most exciting thing anyone's ever done to me! You poor kid. Mushnik isn't impressed, but agrees to give Seymour one week to whip it into shape. Well, Seymour stays up with the plant all night, trying to coax it to health. And it suddenly starts opening and closing its leaves like a hungry bird, wanting food from its mama. Seymour gets all excited about this and accidentally pricks his finger, and a few drops of blood land in the plant's quote-unquote mouth. And the plant shows a remarkable change as soon as the blood hits its leaves. To keep the plant going, Seymour pricks all of his fingers that night to feed it, and the next day he has bandages on all of his fingers. But the next day also, everyone is astounded to find that Audrey Jr. has grown nearly four times as large as the day before. 
and word starts to get out. Customers start flocking to Mushnik's store to see this amazing new plant. However, that night, the plant makes its hunger known in a more overt fashion. Now, Seymour is not able to drain any more of his own blood. Uh, he's, his fingers are all bandaged up. It looks ridiculous. So he finds himself in a fix because he knows that his job's riding on keeping this plant healthy. So he decides to take a walk to think things out. And as he passes by the train tracks, he throws a rock at a bottle and ends up, instead of hitting the bottle, he hits a night watchman who looks like he's played by the same guy who played Otis on the Andy Griffith show. Now, I could be wrong on that. Uh, the, the casting in this film was insane, um, and, the, and the credits are far from complete. But in any case, I'm going to call him Otis. Anyway, he gets beamed by this rock, and he stumbles onto the train tracks and is run over by an oncoming train, and basically gets dismembered off-screen. Seymour panics and stuffs the remains into a sack and tries in vain to find a place to hide them. He ends up going back to the shop, carrying the sack of Otis parts, and Audrey Jr. is still braying for its food. Feed me! Feed me! So Seymour stumbles upon the idea of getting rid of the body parts that way, so he ends up feeding Otis parts to the plant. And Mushnik just happens to be outside of the shop and watches him do it. Yeah. So he's shocked into a stupor at what he's just seen and considers calling the cops. But when the plant is even bigger the next day and draws even more customers, he decides to leave well enough alone. It's making money for him, so why should he argue? The next victim is the sadistic dentist that I mentioned at the beginning, and Seymour accidentally kills him with his own drill, and then again hides the body by chucking it into Audrey's Audrey Jr.'s mouth. But before he does that, he actually has to fake being a dentist and fake some dental work, some drill work that is, on a walk-in patient who is a bit of a masochist, and this patient's played by none other than a very young Jack Nicholson. Now, no Novocaine, it dulls the senses. <laughs> this is gonna hurt you more than it is me. Oh, goody, goody, here it comes. <laughs> oh my God, don't stop now! Mushnik himself even gets in on the act, deciding to watch the plant himself one night. A talking plant we got. I'm hungry! No. Hungry? And not a fine kettlefin fish. Who would you like to have tonight? You look fat enough. We not only got a talking plant, we got one that makes with smart cracks. And a burglar comes in and demands money, and Mushnik lures him into Audrey Jr.'s mouth. When Seymour refuses to feed the plant anymore, tries to take a stand, we find out that this plant not only can talk, but it can hypnotize as well, as we heard in the trailer. And off he goes to blunder up another victim. The crazy thing is that all of these deaths are really accidental. There's not a single murder one in the whole lot. But eventually, a couple of Dragnet-style detectives get wise to what's going on. 
and their suspicions are confirmed whenever Audrey Jr.'s blooms all open up. What's supposed to be this big special occasion when this happens ends up becoming something kind of horrifying, and I'm not going to say anything more. This is one of the few times whenever I'm kind of going to hold back a spoiler. You just have to see it for yourself. Anyway, after he gets chased by the cops through a tire factory, I know that sounded random, but that is what happened, Seymour finally has had enough and tries to do the plant in himself, uh, with results that I think you can pretty much predict. Now we'll call class into session for film history. Now, you can't really talk about the history of Little Shop of Horrors without first talking about Roger Corman, quite possibly the most successful independent filmmaker in history. Corman wrote the book on how to make effective low-budget films. Quite literally, he wrote the book. His autobiography is entitled, How I Made a Hundred Films in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime, which is by and large a true statement. And it's a fascinating and educational read for any movie lover. Now, there are some other biographies out there as well. Uh, I actually read an unauthorized biography that kind of uh, takes up the slack because Corman's autobiography was written back in 1990, and this one has covered some of the period of time since then. But um, there's some, some of it doesn't cast Corman in the most flattering light. But in any case, there are books out there. He's definitely a person worth reading about. When he got into the motion picture business, he originally only wanted to be a producer. But he ended up becoming a director, quite simply, when he found out that it was cheaper for him to do it himself, rather than hire and pay somebody else to do it for him. He soon established himself as a filmmaker who was almost ludicrously frugal. Like I said, he would stretch a dollar until it screamed for mercy, but he got results. And the relationship that he developed with the exploitation powerhouse, American International Pictures, resulted in titles that are spoken of with reverence by lovers of low-budget cinema everywhere. Movies such as Attack of the Crab Monsters, A Bucket of Blood, Creature from the Haunted Sea, Fall of the House of Usher, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, The Wild Angels, and countless others. His later work with AIP and his own production company, New World Pictures, afterward, also established Roger Corman as running the best farm team in Hollywood. While none of his own films ever won an Oscar, he helped launch the careers of such luminaries as Ron Howard, Francis Ford Coppola, Joe Dante, Peter Bogdanovich, Martin Scorsese, Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, and the list just goes on and on. And in 2009, the Academy finally gave him an honorary Oscar, awarding him and recognizing him for his work in engendering films and filmmakers. Anyway, back to Little Shop of Horrors. The story of how this film came into existence is almost as funny as the plot of the film itself, or almost as bizarre, I don't know if you'd call it funny. Screenwriter Charles B. Griffith, who wrote or co-wrote the scripts for 18 of Corman's films and who had a reputation for working unbelievably fast, went on a bar crawl with Corman one night, according to the director, and ultimately they ended up in a place where Sally Kellerman was working as a waitress. Now, if you recognize that name, Sally Kellerman also went on to become a famous actress. You know, all these people knew one another um, going up in the uh, film industry, I guess. And as the two of them tried to top each other with bizarre or subversive ideas for a movie... 
they enlisted Kellerman as a referee of sorts, and she finally sat down with them, and the three of them hammered out the story while Corman and Griffith themselves got hammered. According to Griffith, the night ended with him uh, being in a drunken brawl, but he doesn't remember getting hit or anything like that, so... In any case, he survived. And in any case, Corman was interested in seeing just how fast he could shoot a film. His previous film, A Bucket of Blood, was shot in five days, and he wanted to outdo that with Little Shop of Horrors. So how did he do it? Well, here's where that frugality and that uh, willingness to go on the cheap come into play. Another studio's production had just wrapped, and Corman was able to talk those filmmakers into leaving their set standing for five more days, three for rehearsal and two for actual shooting, and the production ran between Christmas and New Year's Eve of 1959. To keep the costs as low as humanly possible, the winos and bums of the area that they were shooting in were enlisted as extras for whatever change that Charles Griffith had in his pockets. He even brought in some family members for bit parts, and even got into the act himself, playing the burglar that Mushnick hired her lures into Audrey Jr.'s jaws. Now, there are some reviewers who dispute this two-day shooting schedule. They don't think it's possible. But all of my reference works and primary sources agree on this point, that it was indeed shot in two days. Whether or not that's a record, I'm not sure. The film opened up to little fanfare, it played double features across the country, drive-ins and what have you, but still managed to turn a modest profit, which actually was a bit of a letdown for Corman, because he expected this film to either be a bona fide hit or a flat-out failure. He didn't think that it would just be an average picture. But as time passed, the film did develop a cult following and was an underground hit at college campuses and art theaters and earned a place of honor in the pantheon of midnight movies. This interest led to the story being adapted to an off-Broadway musical in 1982, and then the musical became so popular that it was made into a movie directed by Frank Oz in 1986, starring Rick Moranis in the role of Seymour, and um, Steve Martin was the dentist in that one, and a few other big-name actors were in it. I haven't seen the film myself. I hope to at some point. But in any case, that film developed a cult following. So we can see that, you know, this this little ridiculous movie um, had a remarkably long pair of legs, you know, considering that it's still popular today and was even remade into this musical. So now let's go ahead and analyze the film. So here are the facts as we know them. This film was written in less than a week, shot in two days and a night, had a budget of next to nothing, I think the estimates was like um, $27,000 or something along those lines. It used storefront sets that were torn down shortly after it was completed, a bunch of bums and winos hired off the street as extras, relative unknowns cast in the lead roles, and a monster that looks like it was slapped together from paper mache and about 20 pounds of cotton. Now, based on those facts alone, this movie has no right to be as good as it is. But it is good. It is one of the funniest and most bizarre films I've ever seen. Early on, it seems as though Little Shop of Horrors has a little bit of trouble deciding whether it wants to be a comedy or a horror film. And a lot of movies that have that kind of split personality end up being 
not a good example of either genre. But with this one, the end result, regardless of how you classify it, it's entertaining. The film has a brisk pace, it has smart, joke-a-minute writing, compliments of Charles B. Griffith, and these make up for the non-existent production values. Yes, it definitely looks like it was shot in just two days, but when you're having this much fun, who cares? Both the acting and the dialogue have a sketch comedy feel to them. Now, that can wear thin whenever you're trying to do a feature-length film. Just, you know, ask any of the people who were involved in the films based on Saturday Night Live characters. But in this case, it doesn't get old, and soon the audience is drawn into a story that is as fascinating as it is ridiculous. Now, does every joke work? No, of course not. You're never going to have, you know, uh, you're never going to bat a thousand. But you don't even have time to groan at the occasional miss before another funny moment makes you forget about it. Especially brilliant when it comes to the acting is Jonathan Hayes as the hapless Seymour Krellboyne. His performance has all the pathos of a Jerry Lewis character, but spares us that oh lady shtick that could make Lewis's act tiresome after a while. Mel Wells as Gravis Mushnick is also exceptional, if a little stereotypical. And Jack Nicholson, as a dental patient who is into pain, gave audiences of the early 60s a foregleam of the characters that he'd bring to life in later films, the really edgy, neurotic-type characters. The only thing I really didn't care much for in this film was the music, and actually the music that you hear in the trailer is used throughout the movie, and actually ended up getting used in some other Roger Corman films of the time. But there's just too much xylophone in it for my taste. Some of it actually sounds like it was borrowed from an old episode of the Flintstones. It's like it's trying to play up the silliness of the story, when the story really needs no help in that department. But that's really just a minor gripe. Overall, I really enjoyed this film. The DVD version that I saw um, was taken from a print that definitely looked like it had seen better days. But actually, in this case, that helps the movie. It adds just another layer of good, old-fashioned, low-budget cheese. So, now, speaking of DVD, where can you find one? Well, there are countless DVDs and at least one Blu-ray version of this film floating around. You can find a used copy on Amazon for a few bucks and sometimes possibly as little as a penny, not counting shipping. Although, be advised, if it's the 1960 film that you're after and not the 1986 musical, be careful. I'm not knocking the musical, I'm not going to judge what I haven't seen yet, but just make sure you know what you're getting. Now, Legend Films has also released a restored edition that includes a colorized version. And I'm going to stop right there because I am completely against colorizing films that were originally shot in black and white. Um, it's, I, it just totally turns me off to the, to the movie if it's been colorized. Uh, and one of these days I might devote a whole episode to why I don't like that. But we'll just leave it at that. Personally, I haven't really made any effort to get a digitally restored or remastered version of this film because, as far as I'm concerned, all the dust and the scratches just sort of add to the charm of this movie. Now, if you want to pay nothing, the film also actually is in the public domain. Uh, what this means is that you can download it from archive.org, not orb, and also view it streaming on YouTube. So you've got a few different options there. 
So, overall, while Little Shop of Horrors is by no means a masterpiece, it is a textbook example of a cult classic. Working with virtually no budget, Roger Corman made a film that is far more entertaining than dozens of other duds that were exponentially more expensive to make. And unique above among typical low-budget films of the time, including many of other uh, works by Roger Corman that try their hardest to be serious, this film never takes itself too seriously. In fact, it thrives on its own silliness, and it actually invites the audience to join in. And if you do so, you're not going to be disappointed. Well, that's it for this episode. As always, this is Professor Stanton Gearhart signing off with the words of a film critic much wiser than myself. Learn to go and see the worst films. They are sometimes sublime. We'll see you next time on our next episode of the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. Goodbye.